from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Tara Misinforma. And I'm Tessa McQuaid, and we'll be your hosts for the next 300 minutes of environmental news from across Canada and around the 2030 world. Today our team is sharing a roundup of reports on the state of the planet in April 2030. As you'll recall, Fridays for the Future are a weekly international statutory holiday instituted in 2025 as part of the United Nations Global Green New Deal and Climate Conservation Convention known in short as the UNGGNDCCC, led by Swedish Prime Minister Greta Thunberg and U.S. President Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, with the backing of the new technologically advanced Global Youth Council. While referring to it as a holiday, Fridays are more accurately described as a mandatory day of action in which public institutions, private citizens, and industrial producers are outlawed from purchasing consumer goods planet-wide. Starting at midnight every Thursday, the New York Stock Exchange is frozen, slowing industry access across the globe and encouraging self-reflection and deep decarbonization. The New York Stock Exchange and global trade do not resume until 12.01 a.m. Saturday morning. With the halt of global commodity trade, people around the world stop shopping and instead make or barter, share with their neighbors, and collectively labor to upgrade infrastructure, both public and private, to more energy efficient and environmentally regenerative materials. While distracted from the distraction of status and conspicuous consumption, Global Fridays for the Future have led to monumental achievements by the human race in combating what was once known as, quote, catastrophic climate change, end quote. Today, on the fifth anniversary of Fridays for the Future, we look backwards to see how the threat of catastrophic climate change brought the people of our planet together to do good while also looking forwards at what this new era of environmental and social justice means for us today. Inspired by the prescient warnings of the October 2018 UN IPCC Special Report on Global Warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius, the past decade has been one of awesome growth in human rights, empathy, social justice, technology, and political empowerment. At the same time, we continue to cope with the effects of the past century and the new geopolitical borders introduced through rising sea level and the no man's land of the equatorial desert belt. Our changing landscape and society are the focus of today's report from the front lines of April 2030. We turn now to our local and global correspondents to get the update from reporters in technology, consumer goods, pop culture, resources, governance, and the weather.
Hello, this is Carter Krasitska coming to you from the Goodle HQ up here in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, where we are having a balmy day with some beautiful skies. Rappel has just released some information regarding their newest smartphone to hit our shelves in the last five years. This time, the smartphone is fully recyclable and has parts which can be easily replaced. This change in the smartphone construction and disposal has been made after the imposition of greater regulation around the sourcing and disposal of precious metals and other toxic materials involved in the technological products and their own production. Additional clauses to these regulations say that the products must be built to last at least a lifetime, which means most of the new technological products we've seen in the last five years have easily replaceable parts which can be replaced at stores where you buy the product. This move to increase regulation around sourcing evolved from a phase of technological innovation known as the ultimate greenwashing, which happened in the early 2020s. During this phase, technological innovation allowed for products to almost instantaneously decompose once the company had decided their, quote, lifespan was up, unquote. The process involves the release of a mycelial solution stored inside the product. This solution was composed of genetically modified fungi, which were specifically adapted to break down the metals and toxins inside the products. This allowed for what some called instantaneous obsolescence. This technology had initially been invented to help with the reclamation of landfills and the destruction of the Pacific Garbage Island, to which it was a great success. While these companies were originally applauded by consumers for their attention to waste, citizens soon realized they had to buy more and more products as Rappel and other tech companies continued to release new operating systems every four months, making anything greater than three years old practically obsolete. It was soon realized their capitalist overlords had fooled them again, and the consumers fought back and demanded that Rappel and other cell phone companies be regulated to better serve the interests of the collective. After negotiations, the federal government bought out and nationalized many tech and cell phone companies and decided to change the company direction to focus on releasing quality, repairable products on a five-year cycle rather than annual product lines. In other news, the QE2 is officially pothole-free. This is due to the implementation of the solar highway set up between Calgary and Edmonton. The final panels have officially been laid after some disputes have been finished between municipalities and energy distributors. More than 50% of the electricity generated will be used to power an electrical high-speed rail system set up adjacent to the highway. The remaining 50% will be routed back into differing municipal distribution systems and sold below market cost. Additionally, the highway has been lowered to a two-lane road due to the increased safety of self-driving vehicles and to help incentivize the remaining upper-class folks to start using public transit like the rest of us. Speaking of electricity, Alberta officially has oversaturated the market with it. This has come after a decision to allow oil and gas companies to put funding towards converting their abandoned well sites to small-scale geothermal energy and heating facilities. Since the Alberta government had begun actually checking well sites before giving them reclamation certificates, the costs associated with actually reclaiming these well sites is far beyond what was actually expected. So instead, these companies can use their funds to supply rural communities with relatively affordable electricity and the option for district heating systems, using the holes they have already bored into the ground. This surplus of electricity has also allowed for our energy grid to be more friendly to some ecological processes. In particular, the access of energy means wind farms can be shut down when migratory bats are passing through. 
Canadians are starting to notice changes associated with the widespread implementation of smart home systems across the country. CEOs and managers across Canada are reported to have noticed jumps in productivity in their employees, and provincial utility boards are reporting much lower electricity usage levels than the normal levels over the past several years. Conversations between neighbours and co-workers are beginning to reveal that the smart home systems, installed by Commune Sense Home Systems, have slowly adjusted the times at which lights in homes begin to dim in the evening, resulting in Canadians going to bed incrementally earlier each night. As of now, it is estimated that 75% of Canadians who work daytime hours now go to bed at 9pm each night, drastically reducing the electricity usage previously required for lighting homes in the evenings and increasing the average amount of sleep that Canadians get each night. The designers of the smart home program used by Commune Sense Home Systems have stated that they have not determined the cause for the unprompted adjustments of lighting schedules, as more and more Canadians find themselves falling asleep into a collective circadian rhythm. Questions have been raised about the changes in sleeping patterns. Waste treatment programs and menstrual product producers are currently assessing whether they need to be prepared for scheduled increases in demand. That's it for me on the tech side of things. Back to the crew. Carter, out. reporting from the new New York Stock Exchange in Leadville, Colorado. The North American financial sector is finally starting to settle after the dramatic relocation of the New York Stock Exchange to the mountain city of Leadville after the east coast of the United States was overtaken by the rising tides of the Atlantic Ocean, forcing Wall Street to be abandoned and for the sector to head for the highest elevation in the country. The severity of the consequences that came from the flooding of New York and the original location of the New York Stock Exchange has people wondering if a concentration of globally important financial actors located in one place is a good idea, especially with weather events and changing landscapes being as unpredictable as they are. Will the new 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 York Stock Exchange be relocated to an off-planet interstellar base? There is no word on that yet, but it's not out of the question. Now, here are the numbers looking forward to the rest of our trading week. Uzone, the sunscreen and sun protection giant, is up 42 points after meteorologists have forecasted that the upcoming summer will break heat records again. Automobile companies like Ford and General Motors continue to see stocks drop with the decrease in global demand for oil and gas. Meanwhile, Subaru, which has halted the production of fuel-based automobiles, and has converted to the production of bicycles is up 10 points. The housing market is beginning to stabilize now that many places have recovered from the swath of climate-related disasters that have rocked this planet in the past several years. In coastal provinces, the rising ocean levels caused massive losses of homes and other properties, leaving many Canadians without homes and driving up the prices of houses that remain standing. A similar situation unfolded in central and southern British Columbia, as well as western Alberta, due to wildfires of intensities and frequencies that have never before been experienced. However, the rebuilding and relocation of many homes has been successful, 
and the densification of affordable housing in major cities has allowed for the market to return to steady levels. That is all that the financial sector and I have for you today. A reminder that stock markets will close at midnight on Thursday for the weekly celebration of Fridays for the Future. This has been Hannah Cunningham reporting from the new New York Stock Exchange in Leadville, Colorado. Spooky reporting on consumer and fashion trends of 2030. The price of produce from Australia is continuing to reach record highs due to issues with their underwater farms. The issues have been attributed to the flourishing and rapidly expanding Great Barrier Reef. Luckily, due to strong food policy and the Agrarian Trust Program, Consumers in Edmonton, Alberta, have been able to rely on local producers, community gardens, and affordable preserves. For more on the Agrarian Trust program, stay tuned for Dylan's resource report. With the introduction of Fridays for Future, where global consumption is halted, globally people have realized they don't need to consume quite so much and shopping is no longer a valid identity. People are now more than just consumers to companies. They're complex human beings who will make choices based on more than just self-interest. Despite all of this, we do still produce some things, and here are some of my favorite fashion trends from 2030. For the seventh consecutive year in a row, consumption of fast fashion has decreased, with consumers increasingly opting to repair trade, and make clothes unique to their own style. This trend is being reinforced by social media uninfluencers who provide inspiration for do-it-yourself and reuse trends. Right now, we're seeing baggy, upcycled shirts and tight pants, which brings me to one of my last trends for today, which is mushroom pants. So lab-grown leather is out, and teens are opting for skin-tight pants that look like leather, but are really made out of mushroom pulp. Mushroom production has become less expensive, more localized, and is much less resource-intensive than lab-grown leather. These mushroom pants are where durability meets fashion. They're just as durable as lab-grown leather pants, and anybody who's paying attention will be right on this new trend. For this week's trend predictions, I'm going with Neverlane's newest line of air filtering face masks. The line comes in three colors, brick red, evergreen, and charcoal. As Edmonton's air quality hit above 200 on the air quality index, indicating very unhealthy air quality, we saw a surge in the production of filtering masks where style took a back seat. However, the tables are turning and Neverlane's new line marries functionality, health, fashion, style, and sustainability. 
On another fashion-related note, the return of land to indigenous peoples globally has allowed indigenous economies and cultures to flourish. Although landscapes have changed quite drastically from what they have been historically, many nations have been able to adjust and we're seeing a resurgence in indigenous-made goods, ranging from sturdy sealskin boots that you'll likely have for all your life, to elegant beadwork, and upcycled streetwear that sends a message. Some of my personal favorite indigenous artisans are repopularizing fish scale designs. It's something that has been able to reemerge as the oceans are becoming less acidic and fish are beginning to return to the ocean, lakes, and rivers. That's it for this 2030 trend and fashion report. I've been Amanda Spooky. Back to you. from Amiskwichi Waskahegan, or what was once called Edmonton. Here in Amiskwichi, most locals know all too well what happened 10 years ago in 2020 with the crash of the oil economy in the province, but for those of you from elsewhere on Turtle Island, I'll give you a brief reminder, a timeline of changes in Alberta's economy, resources, people, and ecosystems since the 2020 crash. The International Maritime Organization implemented new laws in June of 2020, making sulfur-based fuels five times as expensive as they were before. The IMO rules were implemented in an attempt to decrease global consumption of high-sulfur fuels and shipping. This was particularly challenging for oil sands producers because bitumen just so happens to be the highest sulfur fuel in the world. Though the IMO warning was given in 2018, there wasn't much forethought about what the consequences might be here in Alberta. But as shipping became more expensive and the promises of all Alberta's political parties that Canadian bitumen would gain higher prices in Asian markets, began to look more and more like a pipe dream. A few months later, the election of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in November of 2020 in America really accelerated what had been starting in 2018. Capital flight of oil companies, mutual funds, pension plans, personal investments, all started to divest from the oil sands at an astonishingly rapid rate as Ocasio-Cortez began to implement the Green New Deal in America, slowly beginning to limit oil consumption amidst a market already flooded by fracking in the American shale revolution. It became increasingly apparent that the cost per barrel that oil sands could be sold at was soon going to be less than the costs of production. Government officials ranted and raved and promised that if only we could build the Trans Mountain expansion, then we would be able to diversify and reach those Asian markets. But protests by writers and actors, the Soto and Heisla, senior citizens and high school students, all stalled the pipeline in court cases and protests as it became increasingly apparent that the Asian markets didn't actually exist. After Ocasio-Cortez took power as President of the United States, one of her first acts was to lift economic sanctions on Iran and Venezuela. It wasn't intended, but this had the effect of prompting a global sellout of oil by Iran and Venezuela that was taken up by other oil-producing countries, as they began to fear how 2 degrees Celsius policy changes might strand investments in fossil fuels still in the ground, unrealized in their countries. 
How this unintentionally affected climate change has been debated, but what is certain is that the choice of Ocasio-Cortez to rapidly demilitarize American global presence had more benefits for global climate than the burst in oil production that it sparked. As the most polluting institution in the world, the extreme decrease of the American federal military budget, which was cut in half from $600 billion to $300 billion on Christmas Day of 2020, not only reduced military emissions, but of course also freed many people from a fear that they had long felt. But coming back to Alberta, the expensive international maritime organization laws, combined with decreasing Canadian oil consumption by America, combined with global oil markets more oversaturated than they had ever been, all served to send the price of oil plummeting, and as the highest cost producer in the world, Alberta was hit first and hardest. It finally became public knowledge that the 65-year-old leaking pipeline that the Canadian government was swindled into buying for $4.5 billion from a Texas oil company was actually a stranded asset, not able to bring oil sands products to markets at Tidewater because no markets for expensive bitumen remained in the world. It was not yet, and is still not, the end of oil, but it was the end of expensive oil. For a rocky few years, the government tried to fix the problem by slashing social services, road construction, culture, health, and education, all to subsidize the oil sands Albertans relied on so heavily and were so culturally invested in. But fueling tax dollars into a dying industry amidst massive unemployment and a shrinking GDP, well, it wasn't the most popular position amongst the panicked population, and the whole situation collapsed. A reactionary Green Party rose on a populist wave of public worry and confusion about the way that international corporations had abandoned the province after profiting so much and for so long. Many people struggled to understand what had happened and how oil had failed them, but the fact of shrinking global demand and the cost of oil sands production gradually began to sink in for everyone. The new Green Party took drastic measures. They mandated an, an emergency similar to World War II where every citizen was required and given the resources and time needed, often taking advantage of Fridays for the future, to transform their yards into food production, high-intensity organic gardening with root vegetables and chickens, and longer-term permaculture projects that involved large-scale fruit trees and native berry bushes. Additionally, the low cost of solar and wind, increasingly low cost of solar and wind, and new policies governing selling back to the grid and decentralized energy production allowed many people to begin to produce their own energy and take pride in that. But still, things weren't easy. A shrinking GDP was no joke, and many people emigrated out of Alberta or lived on part-time work, resourceful neighbors, and the new basic minimum wage. After the 2025 shock to global food markets from a wave of extreme droughts in many temperate food-growing regions combined with a sudden ballooning of locust populations, a high percentage of young and unemployed Albertans took up the Emergency Agrarian Trust Program, which funneled both tax and philanthropist dollars towards community-owned small-scale farmland. As many of you probably know, we are still in the midst of a transition that has begun to see a major reversal of the last 70 years of urbanization, as many unemployed young people have taken advantage of the program and are returning to rural communities. I'm happy to be able to report that from 1% of the population farming in 2020, primarily people who owned vast tracts of land and farmed them with GPS-controlled tractors, we now see 7.5% of the population working full-time on food production on small-scale community-owned farms in the year 2030. 
Of course, it hasn't been easy, and Alberta's GDP has actually shrunk by 18% in the last 10 years. But the province has become a model and inspiration around the world because, even though our gross economic production has shrunk, the well-being of our people has improved. Rather than the expected fear, xenophobia, racism, and anger that might have resulted from a contracting economy, and that definitely was there in part, Rather, a fierce commitment to renewing community and connection, sharing economies, banding together to shoulder the crisis, all have actually led to greater overall well-being in Albertans, as they may have been able to consume less stuff, but many felt proud to no longer be so dependent on the unpredictable fluctuations of something as volatile as the price of oil. Studies continue to pour in, recognizing that much of the wealth pouring out of the oil sands hadn't actually been going to the people in the first place, and that this was the perfect example of the way that gross domestic product as a measure of social progress was actually an extremely flawed system that didn't measure ecosystem health, mental health, the strength of communities, or their longevity. It is also, personally, a great joy for me to be able to say that caribou in the northern part of the province has started to come back. And that's something I wouldn't have expected back in 2020, but the implementation of UNDRIP and the repossession of land by Dene, Cree, Métis, and more First Nations and coalitions in northern Alberta has meant the removal of many seismic lines and the return of the caribou. This has been your 2030 Resource Report. My name is Dilbo Haggins, reporting from Amiskwichi, Waskahegan. That was our annual April Fool's episode of Terra Misinforma. The reports you heard today are part satire, part creative writing, where our team imagined what a best-case scenario future might look like in the year of 2030. To hear more stories like the one we shared today, but featuring real news and interviews, uh, visit our website at terrainforma.ca, subscribe on iTunes, and follow us on Spotify. Thanks for listening to this year's Terra Miss Informa. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, which is a part of Treaty 6, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Diné, and many other First Nations people who continue to live and gather here, and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to Tara at cjsr.com or tweet at Tara Informa. A big thank you to our contributors this week, Hannah Cunningham, Amanda Rooney, Carter Gorzitza, Dylan Hall, and Charlotte Thomason. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Dowdell and Tessa McQuaid. Thanks for tuning in and catch you next week right here on Tara Informa. I like to hope so.
this is kind of dark that we've decided to do this. Oh. <laughs> I'm like envisioning myself um, at however, whatever age I am in 2030. Wait one second, let me think about this. It's 2020, so in 10 years. So when I'm like 30, like three or something, and uh, I can just imagine myself. Actually, I don't even know. Why can't I think about what the world will be like in 10 years from now? I don't know. Probably because it's gonna be terrible. Okay, bye. Wait, I take that back. Actually, there's a lot of opportunities for good stuff to happen and good stuff will happen, but we gotta make it happen. So so to anyone listening out there, make, make that thing happen. Get your courage on, make the thing happen. I'll make the thing happen over here if you make the thing happen over there. Perfect, okay, bye.